Good morning, everyone. Pat, can I just uh, thank you for choosing that uh, that song? Because as as we were singing it, and, and I was looking at the words, I thought that would make a great theme song for Temcare. Because as I was saying before, um, through our various programs, what we want to do is to introduce people to Jesus. We want to help them with all their the practical aspects of their lives and the challenges that they're going through. But ultimately, we want to see people come to know Jesus. And and as that song was going through different scenarios and then that final thing of saying, for this, I have Jesus. That's the message that we want to give to, uh, to, to people that no matter how difficult their circumstances might be, um, they can have Jesus with them through that. And uh, so thanks for that. That's uh, a, a lovely a lovely song to introduce. Well, first of all, I just want to thank uh, Monty for all of the support you've provided for Temcare over many, many years. Uh, if you've been around here at this church for a while, you will know the history uh, that Montmorency has had with uh, with Temcare. Uh, you've been a wonderful partner with us, and uh, there are, uh, we're just very, very grateful for that partnership. So thank you. Josh has asked me to uh, to follow the sermon series that you're you're doing at the moment in uh, is in Second Corinthians, and so today's topic, as has been mentioned, is uh, conduct of leadership, single-minded concern. Now, I must admit, I have to be honest with you. When I um, when I first read this chapter, my immediate thought was, now I know why Josh uh, has gone on a pastor's retreat. In fact, I saw him. Um, I saw him earlier this week uh, and uh, I had a bit of a go at him, I must admit. Uh, This is not an easy chapter. Uh, It's not one that I would automatically choose if I had the opportunity to speak at a church. But I did say to him that if I ever head up a church, I'm going to invite him to speak and I'm going to give him the topic of he has to cover the whole of Revelation and the book of Daniel in one sitting. And I thought that was a pretty fair exchange, but uh, fortunately he laughed. But even though this chapter is a, is a difficult chapter, it's, um, it's one that I think has some important lessons for us. Because as I got more into the chapter, as I read more of it and read some of the, the commentaries around it, there is much for us to learn particularly in relation to how we should interact with uh, leaders in the church and how we should manage personal and ministry criticisms. So I hope this morning that you will uh, learn something of value uh, about these topics and will be able to take them away with you. As you've probably uh, uh, already uh, noticed in the, the series that you've been doing and this So maybe we should have mentioned the fourth P, and that's PowerPoints. There we go. So um, as you've been following the the, the series in 2 Corinthians, you would have noticed that Paul had previously spoken about a whole lot of important important matters. Uh, He talked about the difficulties he had experienced in bringing the gospel to them. Uh, He had talked about the integrity and the consistency he had personally displayed towards them and others in doing so. He talked about his love and care for them and the basis of his ministry to them as a a way of uh, introducing them to God's new covenant of reconciliation. 
And he'd also talked about the proof of his own calling from God as seen in the way that he had been delivered from enormous hardships. And then uh, he had also mentioned the confidence that he has that they would accept him, and that was in chapter 7. And then in the immediate uh, or the immediate preceding chapters of 8 and 9, Paul had spoken about their generous giving and the wonderful grace that it displayed. And I think I did say to Josh, why didn't you give me that chapter to talk about? That's a great chapter and, and the wonderful grace of, of generous giving. But as we come to chapter 10, Paul now changes tact. And he begins a series of personal and ministerial uh, defences that go from chapter 10 through to chapter 11 and 12 and 13. So what had happened for him to move him from what was what had been a very complementary process to now being seemingly quite defensive? What had happened? It would seem that there were a group of people um, who had come to the church and presented themselves as apostles. They were false teachers who were challenging, amongst other things, Paul's personal integrity and his authority as an apostle. At times through, through chapters 10 to 13, it just seems quite harsh the way Paul approaches things and very direct in his tone. They're therefore very different to what we've read in the earlier parts of, uh, of the letter. Now, some have suggested that Paul completed writing the first nine chapters after he had received a, a somewhat positive report following a, a previous severe letter that he had written to the people at Corinth. And then chapters 10 to 13 may have been subsequently written after he had received a report that there was still a very strong and vocal uh, minority who were causing trouble at the church. Others believe that these chapters form actually a separate letter to the church altogether that was sort of added on. But whatever the circumstances, whatever the immediate cause for these chapters to be written, these chapters 10 to 13, it's clear that these chapters focus on him seeking to vindicate himself and his ministry in the face of critics. So who were they? Who were these people? We're not entirely sure who they were and what the nature of their teaching was. But Paul regarded them as false apostles who seemed to have a number of characteristics to them. We're pretty sure that they were Jewish Christians who were visitors from outside of Corinth. They were claiming a higher authority than Paul and they sought to assert their own authority with the people at Corinth. They denigrated Paul before his converts and they were not averse to receiving financial assistance from the church. And they tended to behave in a very high-handed and insolent way toward the church and boasted of them, boasted of the church members as, as though they were their own converts. And so it's this group that Paul is having to defend himself against. I guess we've all, if we've been in churches long enough, we've all come across similar groups of people who either already exist in the church or come to a church and seek to upset the spiritual apple cart. Under the illusion that they are there to bring clarity to truth, and we've probably heard that, that, that said, or whether they're, they're doing that or they're seeking to bring a better way of doing church, all that they seem to do is create division. All that they do is, is, is 
upset people and divide people, to divide the congregation. And they often are working at, at causing people to distrust the role of the existing church leaders. Now, let me balance that by saying we need to be open to change. If we do things in the same way as we, as all, as we have always done it, then we're going to find some difficulties in that. So we need to be open to change as followers of Jesus. But we also need to be careful of those who are the bringers of change. And we need to be particularly discerning of their motives for doing so. And so as we come to this, this, this chapter, there are a couple of things that, um, that, that stand out to me. And as I was reading it, I thought to myself, hang on a minute, was Paul actually justified? Did he have the right to defend himself? And, and I, I started to think to myself, you know, as we, as we look at what Paul does in chapters 10, 11 and 12 and 13, um, was he, as a, a follower of Jesus, did he have the right to defend himself? Did he have the right to defend himself when these people were challenging him? And if he did, was he justified in doing so? And then I got to thinking, well, if that's an issue for Paul, surely it's an issue for, for, for me. And if it's an issue for me, then it's prob- probably an issue that we have to face. So the first uh, question that comes into my mind is, as I think of this chapter before we even get into it is, you know, should Paul have defended himself and his ministry? It seems as if, as we look through scripture, there are scriptural uh, precedents for a yes and a no answer to this. We know from the ministry of Jesus that there were occasions when he, he challenged others and even defended himself and his ministry. And then there were other occasions when he said nothing. In terms of the first, uh, we see it in Matthew 12 where Jesus responds to the accusation made against him that his ministry was derived from the devil. Or in chapter 16 of Matthew where he he warns his followers about the the yeast of the religious leaders and he's quite strong in that. And in fact, in chapter 23, he outlines seven woes to, to the leaders of that time. But then there were other times when he said nothing. And so at his trial, we, um, we see him saying nothing. When that would have been the time when he was very justified in defending himself, given the, the number of false accusations that were mean, being made about him. So in this case, was Paul justified in defending himself in this case? I guess we've all experienced situations where we have copped criticism, either personally or in our particular ministry field. And if you noticed about yourself and probably noticed with, with other people is that when attacked, most people will revert to becoming very defensive. Have you noticed that? I noticed that about myself. If somebody says something critical of me, my first fallback position is I become quite defensive or I become hurt or I, or I want to be aggressive in the way that I respond. Uh, it's very difficult to depersonalise 
a criticism. It's very difficult to depersonalise an attack. And so we tend to, 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 to feel the need to, to, to justify our actions or our beliefs because if we don't do that, we, we, we think that um, we're going to be regarded in a lower light. And so there's this tendency to personalise everything. And in doing so, we, we sometimes find it very difficult to see any legitimacy in what the person has said to us. So they, they criticise what we have done or how we're doing things. We personalise it and we don't see any validity in or legitimacy in what the person has actually said, the content of their criticisms. In this case with Paul, it seems that Paul felt the need to defend himself not for personal reasons, but he defends himself more importantly because if he didn't do so, then it would undermine the very ministry that God had given him. He had been given the ministry of reconciliation. It was a critical ministry. And it seems as if Paul defended himself here because if he didn't do that, then the whole ministry of God reconciling himself to man through Jesus was going to be undermined. You know, I find it incredibly sad that Paul had to defend his ministry, had to defend himself in light of all that he had done for this church. And that's one of the, the sad things about, uh, you know, when people are in leadership and have done a lot in the church and then they're criticised, it's, it's really sad to watch that, when, particularly if you know the history behind what that person has done within the church. And so when I was reading this and I was thinking, Paul, it's, it's sad that you have to actually defend yourself. You've done so much in, in setting this church up and teaching them. And now you're being criticised, you're being hounded and you, you, you have to defend yourself and it's so sad. It seems that the tall poppy syndrome was alive and well in, in the first century. It didn't originate with Australians even though we think it, it happens. It existed back then and it's existed way before then and so the, the tall poppy syndrome was alive and well as we come to this this particular chapter. But really, what else can we expect? Jesus said that a prophet has no honour in his own country. In Matthew 13, 57, Jesus arrives at his hometown and begins to teach and the listeners question who he is and they take offence at him. And Jesus then states, only in his own hometown... And in his own house is a prophet without honour. What an incredibly sad thing to say. It should have been the other way around. But it wasn't. And then Matthew records something incredibly sad. It says that Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So Jesus copped it. Paul copped it. And you and I are going to cop it at some stage. And so one of the things that I learned from this is, is I think about that question of should Paul have defended himself in his ministry. While it's difficult to do so, we need to make sure that we don't personalise the criticisms that might come our way. We need to make sure that we separate the personal from the content of the criticism. We need to make sure that we're uh, focusing on any legitimate issues that, uh, that needed to be addressed. That's what Paul seemed to do here. 
he could have taken it incredibly personally, but he, he said, I've got to defend myself here because if I don't do it, then the whole ministry, the critical ministry that God has given me and given to this church, which is, which is the central to the gospel and the cent- central to the future of the church, is going to be undermined. So it has to be defended. The other issue that arises for me uh, as I was thinking about this before I even started thinking in, in any great depth about the chapter was how should we relate to leaders in the church? Is it right for me as a follower of Jesus to challenge, to rebuke, to criticise leaders within the church? That's what these people were doing. So is there any reason why I should? Am I justified in doing that? And when you look at the life of Paul, uh, there were times when he criticised others. He criticised Peter for a particular stance that Peter had taken on an issue. There were also instances when Paul criticised leaders in the church for their behaviour, particularly if they were leading people in the wrong direction. Jesus rebuked the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Paul criticised, Jesus rebuked. In many instances, scripture focuses on the need to support and uphold those who are over us as leaders in the church. So you have this this thing of Paul criticising, Jesus rebuking, but in many instances, when we read scripture, the focus is sort of on on the other side of us needing to support and uphold. So again, what's the answer? There certainly needs to be a balance between loyalty and support towards those who are our leaders in the church, but also making sure that we don't simply have a blind faith approach to what they do. At times this can be a very difficult process, but there needs to be that balance between rightful respect for our leaders and what they teach, but also making sure that we don't just accept everything that they say. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 that we need to test everything. We need to hold to the good. We need to avoid every kind of evil. John says in 1 John 4, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. If you're not analysing what I'm saying to you this morning, then you should be. Because I could be telling you a whole lot of gump. So you need to be testing and we're encouraged to test. But on the other side, we are also there to support and encourage our leaders. You know, finding that balance requires incredible discernment and grace. When we're assessing the behaviour and attitudes of the leader, but while we're also making sure that we have a clear understanding of scripture so that we can be sure about what is being taught to us. In Romans 16, Paul exhorts the readers to watch out for those who cause divisions and to put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them. And then in Ephesians 4.11, he says, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people. It's Jesus who has given us leaders in the church and I guess the implication there is that if Jesus has given us 
the leaders, then they're there to be respected and honoured. And so we need to find this balance between watching and testing and also recognising the important role that people have in our church and the leaders in our church. But can I say, as in most things, the starting point for us should be about peace. Paul tells the Ephesians to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. In Romans, he exhorts them to work at peace when it's possible to do so. So our starting point should be working at peace, not let me just find something that I can find as a fault in in the leader. But when the hard things have to be said, we also need to be constructive in our criticism for the purpose of building rather than tearing down a person. When you look at the overall history of the church, whether individually or globally, it's full of examples of, on the one hand, people who have blindly followed a leader despite their obvious flaws, and on the other hand, those who spend most of their time simply trying to find a way of pulling down a church leader. Have you noticed that? So we can look at that globally, but even within individual churches, there are plenty of examples of people who just follow blindly and then others who just seem intent on pulling down. We need to be discerning so that we can focus on supporting our leaders whilst knowing when and how to challenge them in a way that's going to be constructive when it's required. That's almost a sermon in itself, isn't it? But, I, you know, when I was starting to read this chapter, those were the two big questions that, that, that came to my mind. And I, I think it's, they're important to address before we even get into the chapter itself. So how did Paul address the challenges he was facing from his critics, who simply appeared focused on tearing him down and destroying him? It's interesting, I looked at a couple of reference here, uh, references here and I like the way that they, they divided this chapter. In some ways, the breakdown of Paul's defence of himself can be viewed in, in the way that the Zondervan Bible, Bible commentary um, uh, does, where it talks about Paul in verses 1 to 6 being humble by preference but bold if necessary. In verses 7 to 11, where he focuses on how his authority with them is not inferior to those who claim to be the apostles amongst them. And then in 12 to 18, he talks about nothing being done beyond proper limits. And then uh, in not only in the Zondervan uh, Bible Commentary, but also in Wilmington's uh, Guide to the Bible, if you can get hold of those two books, they're a really helpful starting point. Uh, they help you to, to really understand the structure of uh, the various books and epistles and, and parts of the Bible. So alternatively, the chapter could be divided into how his method of ministry contrasted with the others. Uh, he didn't use carnal or fleshly weapons in verses 3 to 5. He didn't employ a faulty or fake system of measurements, as we see in verses 12, 17 and 18. And he did not build upon the foundations established by others in verses 13 to 16. So you can have a look at those and, and, and work out whether they're right, but I just thought that was a helpful way of looking at this chapter. 
You know, it's very easy to, to look at this chapter and to think, well, this is a chapter for pastors and uh, leaders of the church, the elders and the deacons, but, you know, I'm just, I'm just an ordinary person. I'm a, I'm a pew sitter. Um, I don't really do much. I don't have any real significant role in the church, so it's not really for me. But I would challenge you about that. We should not see this passage as simply relating to leaders within the church. The issues that are raised here are matters relevant to all of us as followers of Jesus, no matter whether we are leaders or not. You know, all of us are going to be criticised for whatever reason at some stage. You can be the people leading the the, the worship and somebody will criticise you for the way that you're singing, the choice of uh, the, the, the song that you're singing, maybe whether you're in tune, whether you should be using drums or not drums or whether you should be using this or that. You'll get criticised for that. You can be out making the tea and the coffee and somebody at some stage will lodge a criticism about what, the way you've done it. You haven't put enough this or that or you, there's, you know, there's no cream biscuits there, there's only those biscuits or uh, there's no Tim Tams or whatever. Um, you know, there'll be some criticism uh, levelled at you. You might, um, you might be a deacon, you might be an elder here, you might be a pastor... The reality is, no matter where you are on the spectrum of leadership, you are going to cop criticism. And so the answer is, we need to know how to appropriately respond in those situations to ensure that we are following Jesus and not reacting in a way that the world believes might be appropriate. So Paul gives us some clues here, and I just want to talk through those. So we can all learn from this chapter. One of the things that Paul says, um, for example, in verses 1 to 2, he says, I can, be t- I can run the tough line if it's required. It's not my preference, but if needed, I can run the tough line. You think I'm a timid person. I don't know why they would ever think that of Paul. He was, he was you know, right in your face most of the time. But he says, I can be bold when needed. And in fact, I might just have to adopt that method in this case. My eldest son reminded me of something very important. He's a principal at a a school. And he said, we can't always be a friend. He says, he said to me, Dad, um, we can be friendly, but we can't always be a friend. In my previous work life, I worked uh, for the family court and I did assessments for judges. So families weren't able to sort things out. They'd come to the judge that, uh, and ask the judge to work something out for them because they couldn't work it out. So it was my job to um, assess the family, put together a report, provide advice to the, ju- the judge. One of the things that I had to balance was just being respectful and understanding of the circumstances going through um, that these people were going through, but also being clear about what needed to be said and how to say it. And sometimes, uh, you know, my recommendations to the judge were pretty tough and pretty direct, and I can remember a number of cases where I had to be that, but in saying that, trying to be as respectful and um, 
and understanding as I possibly could. One of the things I I would often say to the, the judge is, these are some of the things that help us to understand how this mum or this dad has behaved. It doesn't excuse their behaviour though. It doesn't excuse the impact that it's having on their child. And therefore this is what needs to happen. This is what mum has to do. This is what dad has to do. This is what they've, they've got to work out for the benefit of their kids. But to do it in a respectful way. And so sometimes we need to adopt a directory approach. We need to challenge somebody about their actions, particularly if they're, they're criticising us. You know, Jesus did it with Peter. Remember after the resurrection? He had that conversation with Peter where he, he asked the question, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Now, what was Jesus doing there? Jesus was challenging Peter because Jesus had, oh, sorry, Peter had, had denied him three times. And so Jesus was not averse to gently challenging his followers. But if we're going to do that, we need to remember uh, that challenges need to reflect grace and mercy as well as a balanced firmness. So if you're going to do that, if somebody criticises you, if somebody attacks you, sometimes you need to be firm, but you also need to be reflecting grace and mercy. Paul could be firm when he needed to be. One of the other things that Paul helps us to understand here in terms of dealing with um, criticisms is that we need to ensure that our methods and thoughts are right and have the right and correct motivation. So Paul sought to ensure that his methods and thinking were brought in line with God. If you look at verses 3 to 6, he, he says... You know, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And he says in verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So Paul was really focused on that. You know, it's very easy to resort to human logic when dealing with people who are critics. My, the way my crazy brain works is I'm very strong on logic. I struggle when people are illogical. It drives my family nuts. It drives my staff nuts. But um, it doesn't matter. They're only your family and, 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 and your staff. But um, I love debating. You know, and that's got me into trouble a few times. My natural way of thinking is to, to find loopholes in someone else's thinking and argument and then to seek to undermine their position. And that's generally my starting point when someone criticises me. And it's not only a personal approach, but I guess it's, a, it's, a, it's an approach that has been honed through my professional training and particularly, uh, you know, sitting in a witness box and dealing with being cross-examined by uh, sometimes smart lawyers. There are no lawyers here, are there? Can I just say that the law, we assume that lawyers are all intelligent, but they're not sometimes. Um, and so I guess I'm showing my, myself there, aren't I? Um, but that's, that's what my tendency is. 
But is that in line with God? And if Paul was um, talking to me and listening to me, he'd say, Neville, you can resort to that and it can be smart and you can win the argument, you can win the debate. But is that really of God? No. So Paul tells his readers that in dealing with his cricket, uh, critics, he seeks to bring his approaches into line with how God sees things and deals with matters. And noticing, he says, I bring every thought to make it obedient to Christ. He wanted to make sure that as he approached and responded to people who criticised him and who attacked him, that he wasn't relying upon human logic or debating skills, although he had those. He was relying upon arguments and positions that were in line with how God would see things. And that might mean for us and for you and for me that we might have to ask ourselves some important questions when somebody attacks me. Will my response to the critic be an approach based on my wisdom and what I want to do? Or will it be based upon God's wisdom and what is in line with how he wants me to respond? Will I need to move from a debate with someone to a more measured and respectful approach that seeks to be firm but respectful? And what does scripture say about the claim made against me? And so Paul gives us some handy hints here of of saying, well, sometimes you've got to be tough. But you also need to make sure that you're doing things in line with with what God says. And then the third thing he, he points out in verses 7 to 16 is he highlights the fact that we need to be honest with ourselves and our achievements when somebody criticizes us or attacks us. Paul didn't, did not seek to go beyond what he had personally achieved or, or he didn't focus on his ability. He states, we, however, will not boast beyond, our, beyond proper limits. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Paul had a realistic sense of himself and what he had achieved. He did not exaggerate who he was or what he had done. He kept to the facts and in that way, any false criticisms levelled against him um, could actually be answered. He wouldn't lose credibility because of you know, saying something that... And then somebody say, oh, hang on a minute, you're not right on that, Paul, because I know you didn't do that. Oh, I know you're not like that. That doesn't match what I know of you. So Paul kept to a realistic sense of himself and his achievements because in doing that, he would have a credible basis upon which to respond. Sometimes... We tend to approach criticisms by fudging the truth. Sometimes it's not just fudging, it can be outright untruths. I think you know where I'm getting. Sometimes we just lie. We lie to protect ourselves. Or we lay claim to things we have no right in claiming. And can I suggest that if that's the approach that we take, we are going to be found out in some way. I always remember watching a, um, a, an interview that was conducted with uh, um, the famous uh, Scottish comedian. Now, I've forgotten his name, sorry. Billy Connolly. Connolly. And he was once asked, what was the basis of the success of his marriage? 
Uh, and his answer was profound. He said, the truth is easier to remember. And I've always remembered, <laughs> I've always stuck there, and it's very, very good advice. We would do well to keep to the truth when we're seeking to respond to those who criticise us. Because if we don't, we're going to be found out and we're going to lose our credibility. And so when Paul was dealing with these false apostles, when he was dealing with the criticisms that were being laid against him both personally and in terms of his ministry, he did not think beyond who he really was or what he had realistically achieved. He kept to the truth because then he had a solid basis. And then finally, Paul reminds us that we we need to remember who we really are and whose accolades we want and should be seeking. And we find that in those final two verses. Paul states that him who boasts in the Lord, for it is not the one, sorry, but let him who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This quote is very similar to another quote found in Jeremiah 9.24, where the prophet declares, But let him who boasts, boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. You know, Paul knew his ultimate judge. He knew who he would be standing before one day, the judgment seat of Christ. He knew who he would have to give an account to. And that was very much in his mind. And so he was focused on what Jesus thought of him, not what others thought of him. Very profound, very hard to do when somebody's having a go at you and criticising you personally or what you're doing. It's very hard to keep in mind, well... You know, one day I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ uh, and Jesus is going to give an assessment of me, not you. So in some ways, what you say about me, it doesn't matter. Very easy to say, very hard to do. But this is an important factor. When somebody is having a go at you, Paul says we need to remember who our ultimate judge is. We need to get our thinking and our priorities right. In the end, our judge will be Jesus. Not the people in the church, not the people who are criticising you. He is the only one to whom we will have to give an account. And so as we come to this chapter and as we we finish this chapter, even though it was uh, a personal account of how Paul dealt with the criticisms that were being levelled at him by people who were false apostles, who were there just to cause trouble. There are things there that we can take away and learn for ourselves, whether we're the pastor, whether we're an elder, a deacon, a worship leader, leading the Sunday school, teaching in the Sunday school, doing the coffee and the tea. Remember that as you go out in a little while and have that uh, cup of tea or coffee. Make sure you put into practice some of the things that Paul says are going to be helpful because you're going to cop criticism. You're going to cop somebody having a go at you about 
who you are and what you've done and there are some important lessons that come out from this chapter about how we should appropriately respond to those scenarios. I hope you've learnt something from it. And, um, and when you next see Josh, you can tell him, yeah, don't do that to Neville again because he... No, he'll be right. Let me just pray. Father, we, we thank you that your word applies to us. We thank you that your word is, just quickens our heart. We thank you that our word teaches us so much. And Father, it is so hurtful when we are criticised. And we know, Father, that we go into that defensive mode where we just want to defend and attack and bring somebody else down. But help us to learn from Paul. Help us to remember that you, Lord Jesus, are our judge, our final judge. And uh, it is to, to you that we will be giving an account, not to anyone else. Encourage us with what we have looked at this morning. Uh, maybe some of us here uh, may need to apologise for criticisms levelled against each other. Maybe we need to, to look at our own hearts and, and respond in a different way and to, to move beyond the personal and understand that what somebody is trying to say to us is actually constructive and helpful. Father, whatever our need is, I just pray that you would help us to address it this morning, particularly in light of what we've looked at in this chapter. And I ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.